Thank you for the prayers, Pastor. Um, I'm going to ask if you'd open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. You can also follow along behind me. It will be projected up on the screen. If you would like to use a paper Bible, there is one in the seat in front of you. Um, or you can steal the one from the person next to you. Um, so I'm just going to give a little disclaimer before I get into the message, something that you were taught to never do in homiletics classes. Um, this passage is really hard, and uh, I think it's okay to admit that, right? Like, if you're a pastor and no passage is ever hard, then that means you're just approaching the Bible like you already know everything that's in it. Um, sometimes when the pastor's studying the passage, they're learning new things, too. And um, this, one, this one was difficult, but very poignant. So I want to take a little bit of extra time than I would normally take unfolding it. So I'm going to ask that you would give me grace and give me an extra five minutes, if you would, this morning. Um, so in a series called A Guide to the Christian Life, uh, this passage should prove to be one of the most practical, because one of the most important aspects to a guide to the Christian life is how to discern if something is truly from God or not. That's, that's really what we're getting at a lot of times when we're trying to figure out how to live this Christian life. And, and it can be tricky because not all things that appear to be from God truly are. Just because something has a Bible verse on it doesn't mean that it's from God. Um, Satan was able to quote scripture and distort it. Just because someone's claiming miracles in the name of Jesus doesn't mean that it's from God. After all, Jesus said that in the final days, there's going to be people that are going to come to him and say, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name and, and do miracles and cast out demons in your name? And he's going to say, what? Depart from me. I, I don't know you. Um, that's, you're not from me. Just because somebody has a large ministry that's televised all over the world, um, that certainly doesn't mean that it's from God. As a matter of fact, uh, I would say that almost everything on TBN is not from God. You've got a whole channel of not from God that claims to be from God. Um, and, and John dealt with that earlier in chapter 2 when he said that there were false prophets who went out from amongst them teaching and distorting the message of the gospel. But even though they went out from us, they weren't really of us, meaning that they didn't truly know the God of the Bible that they were saying that they were speaking on behalf of and the message that they were proclaiming as God's word was not, in fact, God's word. And all the, on the flip side of that, what makes it even more difficult as we try to discern what's from God, what's not from God, not all things that hurt are from Satan. We can be so quick to look at things like trials and pain and loss and uncertainty and say, I'm being attacked from the devil, but it's not necessarily from him. The Lord might be allowing some things in your life for a season of pruning. And one of the most difficult and interesting parts of being a pastor is that people regularly come and want to discuss, Pastor, there's something tough going on in my life, and I don't know if this is the hand of God or not. I just lost my job. Can this be from God? Is he opening one door while closing another? I just had a breakup. And, man, I can't tell you how many people... I could 
point some out, but I don't want to embarrass you, that I've talked to that have broken up with somebody that have just been so distraught. And they said, how could this possibly be from God? I was so in love with that person, only to end up finding the true love of their life a year or two later because of that breakup that was so tumultuous at the time. I've seen people leave churches beaten and bruised and asking, where was God that whole time? I devoted decades of my life to that church, and here I am feeling like I've gone backwards. How could that be from God? And then it's more interesting when people bring to you a teaching from the Bible or some sort of demonstration of miraculous power that they saw at a church, and they wonder, is this from God? I've said with so many people who have asked about the Joel Osteens or whoever the plastic megachurch feel-goodery gospelist teacher of the month might happen to be and say, well, look at the size of their church and, and look at the way that he just grins at you and tells you to live every day like it's Friday. That must be from God, right? Um, or I went to this service and, and there was this man that was just knocking people out like a Jedi and people were just falling all over the place. And that's got to be from God, right? Or a bit closer to home, this guy knew the Bible so well and he could preach reform doctrine with the best of them, and he lived a life that had no obvious signs of compromise, and he used the Bible as a club to beat up me and my family, and now my kids want nothing to do with God because they have a distorted view of his goodness based on the legalism that was taught from a seemingly doctrinally precise man. Is this from God? That's confusing, right? Ever been in any of those situations? Our passage today is going to give you some tools to help equip to discern yourselves, just like John was trying to pastor the church of Ephesus to discern for themselves. So just like you guys would come to me or to Tim or to Lee or to Seski and say, Pastor, how do I know if those things that I just mentioned are from God? That's kind of what John's doing here. Pastor, how do we know if these things are from God or not? So chapter 4. It starts off with a commandment to not believe every spirit, but to test the spirits and see if they're even from God. Look, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits and see whether they're from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So this is clearly telling you that not everything that you hear, even if it's done in the name of God, is actually from God. There are a lot of swindlers, cheats, hucksters, snake oil salesmen out there who claim to speak for Jesus Christ. And often they seem sincere, so sincerity cannot be the benchmark or the litmus test. They can often have big crowds, so big crowds cannot be the litmus test. They can often claim miracles and health and wealth and prosperity if you just sow a seed into their ministry. But None of these things, not the crowds, not the miraculous claims, none of these are in themselves evidence that something is from God. So how do we test the spirits? How do we do what John is asking the church to do here? What does that even mean? Well, that's the reason I didn't finish chapter 3 last week. Um, I've heard this passage taught on a bunch of times, 
And um, when I was saying it was a little bit confusing to me is I, I think the way that I've usually heard the passage taught is wrong. Um, so give me some grace. And that's why I'm going back to chapter 3. Um, I usually hear how to test the spirits. And if you've ever heard this passage taught on, it usually goes a little something like this. Make sure that you're a student of the word so that you can use the word to test things against the word. Surround yourselves with people who know the words so that you can bring things into a community to test them with the word and be like the noble Bereans who are able to test everything with scripture. And all of those answers are really good answers, by the way. We're going to go back to those, and I'm even going to encourage you to do those things. But the problem is, is none of those are actually in the passage. So you would think if he's telling you to test the spirits to see if they're from God, that he would actually tell you in the passage how to do it. Well... Something as important as testing the spirits must have something in the text to guide you to teach you how to do it. And that's when I went back to the study and I studied this like a letter. And brothers and sisters, here's where I need you to kind of trick your minds for a second and not let that big four in the beginning of your Bible trick you because that is not supposed to be a break in thought. Remember, there were no chapter divisions in the original Bible. It was a letter that was written. So imagine you're reading this like a letter. If you're reading this like a letter, then you wouldn't say, well, the answer has to be in chapter 4 because there's a giant 4 in front of it with a 1 next to it that says it's verse 1. So everything in chapter 4 must come from there. There wouldn't be a chapter 4. If you can just, by faith, just eliminate those numbers as, as, as you look at the text, then you'll see that chapter 3 actually has a lot to say about testing the spirits. So that's when I started to see if you studied like a letter, then the answers began to appear. So at the end of the previous chapter, God gave us some indication of whether or not something is from God. And as I read the commandment in 4.1, in light of the last paragraph of chapter 3, it opened up this text in a whole new way for me, and I'm, and I'm guessing probably new for some of you. So what John is doing here is really, really masterful. The end of chapter 3 is all about the heart. Look with me at the last paragraph. By this we'll know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him, starting in verse 19. For whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we receive from him, because he keeps his commandments and do what he pleases from him, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by a spirit that he's given to us. So right before we're told to test the spirits, he talks about our heart and the spirit that we have that indwells us. So at the end of chapter 3, he's showing that there are actually subjective ways to test the spirit, to discern, and there are objective ways in chapter 4 to discern the truth that he's talking about. But chapter 3 is going to give you some great subjective methods to be able to test the spirit and ask, does your heart give you the liberty to engage in something and is this truly of the Lord and before I explain that I want to mention that subjective methods probably have some of you truthers 
on the edge of your seats because you've been taught not to look for subjectivity, but objectivity to be able to discern truth. And I know that there are some people that are just not comfortable with subjective and truth being in the same sentence, and you would prefer everything to be backed up by objective standards. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but the last paragraph of chapter 3 is very subjective, and it's not the only place in the Bible that does that. So in whatever your heart condemns you, he's getting at in chapter 3. So to really understand this, this is where things got difficult for me. I want you to go on a little journey with me. I want you to unlearn everything you've ever known about the term condemn. And that might be tough, because it was tough for me as a grace junkie who hates the word condemn, and I've done my best to shape my ministry and teaching in such a way where people experience change by the grace of God, not by condemnation, and that you guys would just be taught to, to be like airport drug-sniffing dogs when you hear condemnation, and sniff it out and say, man, that is not of the Lord. I even have no condemnation tattooed on my arm. That's how serious I am about hating condemnation. Um, but John uses condemn in a totally different way than we're trained to pounce on when we see it. And I know that I've, I've trained you guys to be pouncers and anti-condemnation grace junkies, but John is actually using this in a very thoughtful, positive, helpful manner. So that's why I'm asking you to go on a little journey with me. There are things in life that should be condemned. Anybody here condemn racism? Anyone? Let me get a show of hands. Like four of you? Okay, that's cool. So at least four of you condemn racism. Um, how about sexual slavery in the sex industry? Anybody condemn that? Okay. Um, the murder of millions of unborn children every year. Anybody condemn that? Um, I condemn the fact that schools and courts have decided that it's their job to teach my children to redefine gender according to their agenda. I condemn the spread of radical Islam in this country, and I condemn the fact that we don't just allow it but we are ushering it in and begging for it to come in and take over. I condemn that. So for a minute, suspend your mind from understanding the term condemn. In the Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus kind of sense. And take a look at the word condemn and realize that there are certain things that are worth condemning. All of us condemn things like bullying, right? Uh, who here doesn't just have your heart hurt if your kid comes home from school and you find out that they've been bullied or drug dealers preying on minors. And I also want you to remember that, that the greater context of this passage is the false teachers and testing the spirits to see if something is truly from God or if it's from another spirit altogether. I remember this time where Marcy and I went to a revival in Wall Township. You don't really see revivals that often anymore, but, but this guy was sitting under the piano and he said it was because the spirit glued him there. 
and, and he couldn't come out. And then he was trying to tell us why he was glued there, but he could only supposedly speak in tongues as he was trying to explain why. And, and everything, everybody was having a riot as he was trying to explain, and, and this babbling was coming out of his mouth. And then when he finally was able to speak in English, I remember him saying, I am going to count to three, and the Holy Spirit is going to come to this place and that's when I stood up in the middle of his little heretical rant and said, that's garbage, I'm out of here. And it was weird, because I drove a bunch of people. I was, the, I was the driver, but I didn't care whether they were leaving. I knew that my spirit was able to test that spirit, and this was not from God. And the spirit of God within me testified that that should be condemned. And I was out of there before that guy had the opportunity to speak any more of his babbling trash into my brain. Um, I had an old buddy who I hadn't seen in a long time. And he started working for one of those TV hucksters that you see that tell you just send them a seed and you'll uh, conquer the world. And his job was to call people who made commitments or pledges to sow a seed, but they were late on their payments. So he was in um, gospel collections, I guess would be his job. And his reason was, when I started to kind of grill him on this, is they don't understand, man. They're missing out on the blessings that would come from sowing that seed. And I don't remember my exact words, but there was something like, you need a new job because your job's from the pit of hell, dude. And I, it was the kind of stuff that John was warning about, that your heart should be able to see and testify that these things that are claiming to be of the Spirit, these things are worthy of being condemned, and they are not of the same Spirit. And I'm not bringing up these examples to make fun, and I'm not bringing up these examples to make fun of charismatics. So we've got plenty of examples of phonies within our own biblical, evangelical, missional, whatever other titles with all on the end of it you want to add. We have plenty of those in our camp, but he says not to believe every spirit. So what I'm doing is two things. I'm trying to give you an example of real life situations where we're not to believe every spirit, but I'm also trying to show you that the commandment to test every spirit is tied back to chapter three into what our heart condemns. So I want to do something a little interesting and talk about Christian liberty for a couple minutes in light of chapter 3, while also using that lens from 4.1 of test every spirit. So the reason that John even brings up this whole topic is because he wants us to have confidence in our walk with God. Look at verse 21. He says, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So what he's saying is really kind of simple. He's saying to stay away from that which our heart condemns and to believe in the truth of who Jesus is and let that be manifested in our lives. And then we can have great confidence and assurance in our walk with Jesus. He's trying to remove those things that cause doubt in your walk with God. And, and it's interesting because when I think of the word condemn, I automatically think of harshness and fire and brimstone. But what he's doing here is actually very gentle and fatherly and pastoral. I don't want you to raise your hands, but how many of you have ever struggled with confidence in your relationship with God? 
Has anyone ever struggled with intimacy in their relationship with God? Has anyone ever heard a condemning message and you've left filled with doubt in your relationship with God? Or maybe you just have your own condemning message and you don't even need to hear one from a pulpit because you have that cassette playing in your head all the time. And um, if you don't know what a cassette is, turn to somebody with gray hair next to you and they'll explain. Um, he's, He's trying to listen to this. If you've ever been there, he's trying to offer you freedom from that. Or better yet, he's telling you that the good news offers you freedom from that. He's saying you don't have to live a Christian life that's full of doubt. This is one of the ways that we test the spirits, like we're advised in 4.1. These thoughts are supposed to be connected. If your heart does not condemn you, you can have confidence before God. So I want to make some things really practical before we end our time today, because I, I think that this could be really important as a church. I think this could be really important for some individuals here. Early in my Christian walk, I fell in love with the writings of a man named Jonathan Edwards. Um, I've, it, to my knowledge, I think I've read every writing of Jonathan Edwards, and he's written a lot of stuff, and, and I'm still in love with them. I don't want to make it sound like it was just something early in my walk, but one of his works that absolutely shaped who I am as a person today is called The Resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. He wrote it when he was 19 years old. I don't think that he ever expected them to be published. They were something he used in his own private devotional life, but there were 70 principles or resolutions. I can't I can't encourage you enough. It's better than anything you're going to hear me say today. So if, if you get nothing other than go read the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards, then this sermon was worth it because I promise you it's better than anything you're going to hear out of my mouth this morning. But it, it's 70 resolutions, and, and he made them, and he read over them weekly, monthly, and yearly to see whether his life lined up with these things that he resolved to live before God. And I got an audio of them, and I used to listen to the audio so much that I think I've memorized all 70 uh, of them. But two of them really stick out to our discussion here, number 25 and 26 of his resolutions. Number 25 was, I'm resolved to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing is in me that causes me to doubt the love of God even the least bit and then to direct all of my forces against it. Let me read that again. Resolve to examine or resolve to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing is in me that causes me to doubt the love of God even the least little bit and then to direct all my forces against it. And then number 26, resolved to cast away such things as I find do abate my assurance. And what he was saying is he's resolved to daily test the spirits and daily examine what his heart condemns and doesn't condemn. And if he finds anything, that's what he's saying. If I find even the least thing, if I find anything that makes me doubt the love of God or makes him doubt his assurance before God, then in his words... He casts it away, or I love his terminology, I direct all my forces against it. 
If there's one thing that makes him doubt that his loving father is as loving as he actually is, he's saying, that gets everything. I'm laser focused on that until that thing is no longer tripping me up and no longer a stumbling block to my intimacy. So the reason that I'm spending so much time on this is because I think that chapter 3 might be the best teaching on Christian liberty in the Bible, even better than 1 Corinthians and Romans that address it more directly. Does your heart condemn you in the things that you're pursuing, or do you have genuine liberty to pursue them? Do you know the voice of the Spirit enough to test the spirits to make sure that the things that you are pursuing really do not affect your assurance before God? Do you have confidence in your walk with God where you can pursue your Christian liberties in a way where your heart does not condemn you in what you're pursuing? I think back to when I first got saved. Didn't anybody do this? I threw out every CD and tape that I owned. God, do I miss that music. (laughs) Some garbage man got so lucky that day, especially if he was a Bob Dylan fan, man. That, that garbage man was... I remember the last CD I had that I didn't throw out. I was talking to my friend on the cell phone, and I'm listening to Biggie Smalls' Ready to Die. And um, he's like, what you listening to in the background there, bro? And I was like, you're right, man. I'm convicted. And I threw it out the window. And I still remember to this day, he's like, bro, God's not calling you to be a litter bug. <laughs> but that, that was the last of my, anybody, anybody here do that when, when you got saved it was just like it's all gone man I, I cut off my dreadlocks I shaved my beard I started wearing khakis and sweater vests and um, <laughs> and, and, and I just started listening to bad really bad Christian music <laughs> um, I need to reel this in before I tell you my true opinions. Um, But for a time, I didn't feel confidence in my heart in listening to my old music before it, it, it took my heart and my mind back to places that I didn't want my heart and mind to go to. Anybody... Uh, feel that anybody just remember that song that would be a trigger that would take you back to something and, and you could remember where you were at the time listening to that song who you were with and these these things were not things that you really wanted to be going through your head and I can remember my roommate listening to um, Fish is my, my favorite band um, and he was listening to Reba by Fish I could still listen remember it and I was sitting there typing a paper, and he looked over to me, and he's like, what the heck is up with you, man? You look like you're in another world. I was like, yeah, where have you been all my life? And I heard something that I missed, and I was like, I forgot how good this sounds. And I didn't know what to do with that feeling, because I had chalked all of that feeling up to, this is just not good. So I went and sat with one of the elders of my church, Tom Moran, um, for any of you that know Tom. And he walked me through this passage right here. And he said, Eric, does your heart condemn you in this? I said, no, no, it doesn't. I'm enjoying it. Uh, Do you feel like it draws your heart away from God? No, no, I don't. Okay, well then listen to what you enjoy in moderation. Be sensitive to the Spirit. And if you feel like it's pulling your heart away from God, then put it away because then it's not from Him. But if you're continuing to enjoy God and enjoy His presence while enjoying the gifts that He's given you, 
What's the problem with that? I was like, wow, that is so simple. As a matter of fact, that's verse 22. If your heart does not condemn you, then you have confidence before God. Disclaimer, this can't be the only standard. We need to back it up with objective truth. God, God has given us a heart and a conscience and a spirit to discern whether things are agreeable or not. But I remember one time I was in the shower and I was just, I started singing um, Black Sabbath and uh, I got to the chorus and I was like, where did that song even come from? That's from the pit of hell. And, you know, he doesn't give you liberty to just do whatever you want. You need to use your mind and think and your heart to discern and your spirit to be able to look at these truths. Developing this has started a life of putting things on the altar. And here's where I want to give you something really practical to be able to see if something is from the Lord or not. I've taken that Genesis 22 passage and I've put things on the altar that pertain to Christian liberty and I've said, Lord... This is yours. I'm walking away from it completely. If you want me to have this, then like Isaac, you're going to give it back. And if you want to consume it and take it, then go ahead and take it for your glory. I'm glad that you have taken this from my life. I remember putting live music on the altar, which was unbelievably difficult for me. I, I love, that's one of the ways I unwind. I love going to hear live jazz being played. And I was like, God, if this is not from you, I don't want it. You take it. And then he gave it back. And I was able to enjoy it on a whole nother level because I knew I wasn't robbing it from him. I knew I was graciously taking something from the hand of a loving father. Big difference. So I know this passage is specifically talking about discerning false teachers, but how about applying it to your heart specifically in the areas of Christian liberty. And you know what? I dare you to do the test that I'm about to walk you through. I dare you. People have all different thoughts about drinking, right? Well, view it through this grid. Does it affect your confidence before God? I know for some people, they enjoy good, godly fellowship with a glass of wine at the table, and there is absolutely no conviction there. Praise God. I know some people that for them to have a glass of wine would be total destruction for their spirit. Um, it would be ruinous. And there's some people who are here in between who feel like you have the liberty to be able to imbibe, but you know that your heart condemns you, that you're imbibing too much. So look at that and say, okay, he gave me this liberty, but now I've taken this liberty to an extent to where it's actually impacting my confidence and my intimacy before Christ. Use it as a test. I'm not talking about legalism here, folks. This is why I think this is the best passage on Christian liberty. I'm not giving you, you know, if you're a Christian, you can drink two beers that are 4.5% alcohol over the ratio of two hours to make... That's legalism, man. I'm talking about engaging your heart. Or what about the stuff you allow yourself to watch? That's an area where I hold a pretty high standard. I know folks that will go and see every new movie that comes out, and they seem completely fine with that. And I just want to ask you, does your heart condemn you in that in any way? Are you having to silence or push down the voice of conviction to enjoy that rather than respond to it? 
and I'm not trying to judge, I promise you. I'm trying to probe a little bit. But sometimes I think through back when the first movie that came through, I, I, I want to think it was Ozzie and Harriet, where there were two people that were not actually married that were sharing the same bed on TV and the world went nuts. They said, they're married on this show, but they're not married. How can they be sharing a bed? That's intimacy that's supposed to be for a husband and wife. And that was the standard back then. And I want you to just consider the fact that that's not even a standard that would cross our minds today. And then ask, is that a good thing? Is, is that okay that the standard has continued to drop? Sometimes I look at things and I just say, how can I possibly delight in that? My Savior died for that. How can I rejoice in watching a main character break his marriage vows and have sexual relations with a woman who is not his wife? How can my heart enjoy that? But, that's my standard. That would condemn my heart and abate my assurance before God. Maybe that's not your standard. I'm not trying to judge. But notice that it's talking about what your own heart condemns. It's not my job to be your Holy Spirit. It's not anyone else's job to be your Holy Spirit. Hypocrisy develops when we spend more time looking into what other people's hearts should condemn than knowing the voice of the Holy Spirit and how he speaks to your own conscience and your own heart. That's hypocrisy. I could give you a million more examples, but you know what would happen if I gave you a million more examples? You would turn the examples into the point, and you would say that I was preaching about drinking or watching movies. I don't. Do what you're going to do when you leave here, man. Do what you're going to do. Uh, I, I'm not, I don't want to turn this into making it about the examples, and I'm not trying to moralize anybody here. I want to preach to your hearts. I'm saying that you can have the joy in walking and complete assurance and confidence with your God, and there's no greater place than walking in unfettered intimacy with Christ. Amen? And if your heart condemns you in something, yet you continue to silence that voice rather than press into God, you're missing out on the intimacy of a confidence walk. And maybe, just maybe, over time we allow things to creep in that at one time our hearts would have condemned. Or, or maybe that thing is pulling you a little further from Jesus than you realize. And instead of drawing near, you're actually beginning to pull away. So I spent all that time to show that one of the major ways that we test the spirits is having a heart that responds to the things of God and rejects the things that draws him away. So false teachers are not confined to people who tell you wrong doctrine about God. Hear this. False teachers can also be the people who encourage you to indulge or abstain from things that would cause you to go against your heart. That could be a false teacher. So to finish up here in chapter 4, he gives the objective standard. He says, verse 2 and 3, by this you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So you can't really understand what he's getting at unless you understand the historical context that he's writing as a backdrop. There were these Gnostic teachers that was teach, teaching that Jesus was not fully God and fully man. 
We're starting the Advent season now. So essentially what they were doing was denying the reality of the incarnation. So we talked a lot about the subjective standard. Here's the objective standard. Don't just go by the message that makes you feel. Go by the content of the message. Is the thing lining up with what we knew to be true about the gospel? Is what you're hearing lining up with what you know of the rest of Scripture and what you know about the revealed character of God? If a teaching confesses something other than the true Orthodox Christian gospel, then it's not from God, even if the person's nice and smiley that's delivering it, even if it's coming from a formally evangelical pulpit. Listen, we live in an area that has mainline evangelical churches that have actually laughed at me when I asked them if they still hold to the inerrancy of the Bible. Consider that. You could walk into a Lutheran or a Presbyterian church and say, do you still hold to the gospel being the way, the truth, the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by Christ? (laughs) Come on. You still believe that? So it can't just be by going into a church and hearing what's taught from the pulpit. It can't just be, I heard it from the Baptist church down the street. Just to be clear, John is not saying whoever comes claims that Christ came in the flesh. He's not saying that that is the only metric to be able to see if something came from God. Um, Why? Because I, I talk to people who read books or watch TV programs all the time where the person would make the claim that Jesus came in the flesh, but they're not from God. Listen, I, I'm not the kind of guy that likes to call out names, but John does in this book. Benny Hinn or Joel Osteen would claim that Jesus has come from God, which he says is the litmus test here. And I'm telling you that those guys are not teaching the truth of God's word, and they are distorting the gospel. So what can we glean or what can we discern if something is from God? A lot. John's main issue is these false prophets were distorting the gospel. And once you start departing from the message of the gospel, you are no longer preaching God's message, but you are preaching an invented version of man's message. And that way, John gives us a ton of advice to work through to discern if something is from God or not. Because even though People are not distorting the gospel through Gnosticism like they were in John's day. There's no shortage of ways that people are distorting the gospel. So a couple of ways that people are distorting the gospel, the most common is adding works. I remember hearing from somebody recently, and again, I'm not trying to beat up on anybody, but I remember hearing, well, this new pope is just so close to the gospel. He's really preaching the gospel. So I listened to one of his messages, and he said, man, we really need to return to the historical gospel and tell people that it's through faith in Christ alone plus works that saves you. I was like, yeah, that does sound a lot like the gospel. But that message will lead you to hell if you believe it. It sounds a lot like the gospel, but it's just adding works. So therefore, it's not the gospel anymore. Or adding prosperity. You know, in order to have the true gospel, you have to have health and wealth or adding legalism. Well, I got news for legalism. Galatians 2.13 says, all who rely on the works of the flesh are still under a curse. Or taking away any aspect of the gospel. Churches divide over some really silly things, but the purity of the gospel is a hill that we should be willing to die on. Amen? 
So things like penal substitutionary atonement, the exclusivity of the belief in Christ, and justification are under attack within evangelical camps. And just like John's day, the attacks are coming from within the church. And any one of those hills are a hill worth dying on. One last way that people are distorting the gospel is just not preaching the gospel at all. Some of the teachers that have become the biggest in Christianity are gospelless in their teaching. Their websites love to wax poetic about how they have relevant messages to the point where they make me want to gag. It's relevant, but if it's relevant in sending you to hell, how relevant is that message? As Ravi Zacharias says, they preach a feel-good gospel that is neither gospel nor does it make you feel good in the end. So back to the passage, anyone who is teaching the gospel that denies any of these things is antichrist according to this passage and has not come from God. And before we close, I want to hit on one more thing. One, one of the most taken out of context verses in the Bible just happens to be in our passage. Verse 4, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This verse usually goes right there with I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as the most misused verses in the Bible, and it makes it sound like it's God's permission for you to be Superman. I rarely actually heard this passage taught in its context, but John just told true believers that they've overcome the world, and this is something that he's done throughout the book, and then he goes back and forth, and what he's addressing is false teachers who are falling away from their false teaching, and then he sets his sights on true believers who haven't fallen away, and he's saying, listen up, listen up! You who have overcome the world. He's saying there's a reason. There, I mean, see, there is no reason for you to be deceived. You shouldn't even have to worry about being deceived. And here's the context. The reason that true believers should not have to be worried about being deceived is because you are overcomers. And he who is in you is greater than he who is out there in the world trying to deceive you. You already overcame the spirit of the world when God indwelled you with this spirit. And now you have a new spirit, the Holy Spirit, who testifies of truth inside of you, living inside of you, and he is shouting down the false gospels that people are preaching. That's the context of greater he is in you than he who is in the world. And the spirit inside of you should be leading you into truth. It's greater than the spirit that's trying to deceive. So don't be deceived. So you have two main ways to see if something is of the truth. The subjective, a well-trained heart, and being in tune with the Spirit. The objective, knowing God's Word, knowing His character, knowing the Gospel as a metric to be able to see the authenticity of what was teached. And I would give you a third, and that would be any teaching that is of God should have the word Jesus all over it. If you're hearing a sermon, it should be Jesus as the hero. Look how much Jesus is mentioned in these short few verses. You should be able to tell a good sermon by Jesus being the hero. Is Jesus really the star of the message? Not reading a short passage and then springboarding and telling about your life. I feel like every time I try to turn on Christian radio and listen to a sermon, I just want to listen to something edifying, and it's a guy who reads a passage, and he's like, well, that was good. Let me tell you about me for the next 40 minutes. I don't care about you. That's not why I turned on the radio to hear it. In your story, the pastor is the hero of your story. 
So is Jesus the hero of the story would be the last litmus test. So a couple of application questions for you. Is there anything that your heart is condemning that is pushing you away from the presence of Christ that you are allowing to be manifest in your life? As I say that, is there something that you know it and you're like, man, I know that this thing is messing with my intimacy with him. Are you walking in the truth and allowing the truth to be the litmus test? And the last thing I want to give you is a word of encouragement. Brothers and sisters, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Does that make you rejoice this morning? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And he knows all truth. Jesus, thank you so much that you are greater than any deception. You are greater than any lie. You are greater than the things that pull us away. And even when we are pulled away, you run after us like a lovesick father and chase us down and bring us back into your presence. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.